when I was growing up, uh, I really stayed in one central location most of my life until I turned 18 years old. I was from this town called Maysville, Kentucky. We were known for very little then. Uh, we were known as the town right next to the town that George Clooney grew up in, especially when the show ER became super famous and all of the moms of my friends pulled out all of the pictures that they had when they dated George Clooney in high school. Um, George did well, for sure, because there wasn't a house that I walked into that was like, oh, you're missing the, the George Clooney photo. He was everywhere. He grew up in this town called Augusta, right next to Maysville. Then after I left, a lot of things happened from there. Like uh, one of our former graduates became Miss America. She's now running for governor or something in Kentucky, which is cool. Uh, one of my sister's classmates won a national championship as a Kentucky Wildcat, and now he plays for the New Orleans Pelicans and is in the NBA. All that happened later. When I grew up there, it was a town of, of farming. It was a really small town. The movie Remember the Titans, the type of like integration that happened in the 70s happened for us in 1993. It was a town that felt like it was behind the times. It felt like I was 10 years behind culture. And it was not until we graduated and left that we started to reflect on some of the things that are every day involved that weren't normal for everyone else. And years later, I've, I've now lived in Ohio longer than I ever lived in Kentucky. I've been here 20 years. And I've realized that my every day in those first 18 years formulated my belief system around the stuff that was gonna happen later. And that comes back to me often, but most importantly it comes back when I see my children acknowledge something for the first time that they had no idea was part of, of like my DNA growing up. This week, our son Finnegan has been enthralled by this toy he calls an excavator, which is really fun when you have an almost three-year-old say the word excavator over and over. It's really cute. He's like, my excavator. And he goes out and takes our mulch in our yard and just exca excavates it. So that's fun of watching all of the, the dirt get moved onto the driveway and not put back. It's really a tractor with a scoop on the front. Then our daughter, Brinkley, started reading Little House in the Big Woods, little Laura Ingalls Wilder action, and she started watching Little House on the Prairie. So dinner this week involved an excavator and this like pioneering family that had a cow and bears and conversations around what it looked like to live in one room, in essence, happening while we were at our favorite restaurant, Chipotle, right? So we're eating a burrito and a nice bowl of rice while we're talking about excavators, and the conversation comes up, if we were living on the prairie, what do you think we would do? Like, what would my job be? And I asked Brinkley, and Brinkley's coming up with some different answers. And I was like, do you think we would have a cow? And she was like, well, I guess we would have to have like something to drink. So yeah, we'd probably have a cow. And it just came out. I just said, 
do you know I know how to milk a cow? He's like, you do? And I was like, yeah, we had like 120 to 140 cows when I was growing up. And she's imagining like Little House on the Prairie milking a cow, which I can do, by the way, without getting kicked. But we did more of the like 1990s, you put these like milkers on cows and you get mass amounts of milk and then a truck pulls up and it takes all the milk away and then it resells all the milk to other people. And I said, yeah, I know how to milk a cow. And she was like, no, not you. Like, we live in Cincinnati. You don't do that here. Like, how could you milk a cow? I could see her imagining me sitting on a little stool underneath a cow with a bucket. And it got really weird for her in that moment like that. Huh? You can do that? And Finn had his excavator. And I'm like, yeah, and I can drive that too. I don't even think I was talking to them in those moments. I was just remembering, oh, you can, yeah, you can drive a tractor because your every day used to involve getting up in the morning, being thrown into the back, maybe the back seat of a car, probably the front seat without seat belts on your way to your grandparents' farm where you would get out and then as a young, young, young child, I would jump on a tractor and we called it riding the fender. Like my job for the day was to sit next to my grandfather as he smoked two packs of Winston's and entertain him while he drove a tractor through some hayfield, tobacco patch, something during the day. And you rode the fender in between milking cows. When I was really little, I wasn't big enough to milk the cows, so you just cleaned up whatever the cows left after you had milked them. Fun job. Disgusting, right? And there was all of this involved in my childhood. By the time I'm in middle school, you learn how to do it on your own. By the time I'm in high school, every day involved milking cows, driving tractors, and going to school, and playing football, and tobacco, and hay, until one day, I never did it again. Until one day something happened and that entire narrative ceased to be part of my daily experience and it changed into something else. There was a new routine, there was a new requirement and none of it required driving a tractor, none of it required cows. I graduated high school, I moved to Cincinnati into a dorm at a local university, may it rest in peace. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, That was inappropriate. My fault. That is no longer where I went. And I, at that point, didn't pick up a tractor ever again. Like, I didn't do it. There were no cows in Price Hill. There was... Soccer instead of football. There was an experience for me that was completely different than what I had done before. I remember graduating high school and leaving and my uncle actually came up to me and said, hey, what are you going to do with your boots? What do you mean, what am I going to do with my boots? He's like, you're going to the city. There's only one when you're from Maysville. 
Like Lexington is a town, Cincinnati is the city. You're going to the city, you won't need those, can I have your boots? And I'm like, yeah, sure, here you go. And I gave him my boots. And I never used them before. I traded in soccer cleats, or football cleats for soccer cleats. I didn't even spend the night in my house in Maysville. I had made an intentional decision to leave and not to go back. And the story after that is one significantly different than the one before. And then there are just moments where my son gets an excavator and I go, whoa, I can drive that. Or my daughter watches a show and I go, oh, I could milk that. That's weird. I don't do that anymore. Every day stays the same until one day something changes and now everything is different. Except, except for some of us and for the audience that Paul was talking to in Galatians, until some of us, except for the most significant moment that should change everything in our lives, which is that introduction to salvation through Jesus and an understanding of a covenant relationship with him for the rest of our lives, for some reason, every day leading up to that had some things involved in it, and then something happened. God found me and introduced me to him and to his story and his narrative, And now I try to plug him back into the everyday before or it just oozes back into my life. That's Galatians chapter four and that's where we are in the story of this journey through backpacks and burdens this summer of asking the question, what is the communal burden that we should carry together and what is my responsibility spiritually to carry on my own? What should I be hanging on to and what shouldn't I be hanging on to? What is our responsibility and what is my responsibility? And so often we've put our salvation and our relationship with Jesus as a burden of the community instead of carrying it on our own. And Steve did a phenomenal job last week of walking through salvation and what Paul positions as a relationship with Jesus and what that means and how it is determined by starting on the cross on a Friday and ending on a resurrection on a Sunday where new life comes. It's not a beginning and ending on Friday. It goes through that three-day experience of not anything I did for myself, complete grace, that I receive from Jesus by his offering through his cross and then entered into a resurrection of overcoming my everyday because now I can be different. But the past keeps oozing in and this has happened to the audience that Paul is speaking to. So in chapter three, he's saying, this is the cross, this is Jesus that saves us. This is not old covenant, this is new covenant. And then he enters into chapter four and he says, but every day you used to, And this is where he picks up in verse one. He says, when I was saying, what I am saying is that as long as an heir is under age, he is no different from a slave. Although he owns the whole estate, the heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time is set by his father. So also when we were under age, we were in slavery until the elemental, under the elemental forces of the world. So Paul starts chapter four by saying, every day, you were under authority. In 2019, we should scratch the word out of slave here because it's, it doesn't resonate with what we would determine as slavery growing up in 
a historical context of American slavery, it's not what Paul would have grown up in. Not the same contents. Maybe indentured servant might work. Maybe just some type of management or ownership was even the system at the time of the understanding. This wouldn't be the same type of slavery that we would say we grow up, we have grown up trying to battle in the United States or try to come into an inclusion of because Paul would be out of bounds if he said this type of slavery that we know in the United States historically is the same as being a son who had an heir, who was an heir but just had to listen to his father. Those aren't, right, that's not an equal comparison. That doesn't make much sense. What he is saying is that there is a system, an economic system that was built on provision under the supervision of someone else. You had resources, but you had to ask permission to have access to those resources until a maturation process had happened, and then you were in charge of the resources. And he's saying, every day, we were, before Jesus, under this relationship with the world that said, You are living under the forces around you, the elements that you exist in, and the context of an immaturity of understanding how all of this works. And you're beholden to it. And every day you wake up hoping that the God of rain will bless you. Hoping that there will be fire or sun or warmth. Hoping that the harvest will come in. Hoping that the God of fertility will bless you. Like there was this hope in this basic elemental belief system that there were all of these different gods working around and that there were all of these different systems that hopefully whoever the master is will bless you. That's our everyday before Jesus. That's, that's Paul's theory there is every day you're doing this. And then in verse 8, He actually goes on and says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. So, there's authority. It somewhat feels like familial authority. And you're also living life under this idea that there's some type of force or activity happening. And that activity that is happening is not the God that I'm telling you about, but you were living under it. That was your every day. And hopefully for most of us in the room, and then something happened. Because then Paul petitions, and then something happens. Until this day, where he says in verse 4, But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship, because you were his sons. God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father, so that you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. And then in verse nine, but now that you know God, or actually it's not that you know God, it's that you are known by God. So he says in this thing, like every day, we were trying to figure it out. We were using the elements around us. We were using the systems, the economic systems around us. We were trying to make the best life possible until one day something happened. God sent his son into this world, both fully human and divine, in order that we would be able to be redeemed as humanity 
through him. Something happened. And you are known by God. The Hebrew in that aspect of know would have been really important to the audience that would have been first reading this. That it would not have just been know about or you have heard of or you read a tweet about. It would have been you intimately know, you have a relationship. It's the same word that would have been connected to Moses when he was illustrated in Deuteronomy as this is the one who knew God and knew him face to face, like intimate, knowing that he said, okay, so God came, did everything that needed to be done for redemption, and he knew you intimately. So every day, we were trying to figure it out, Paul says to his community, every day you're trying to figure it out. And then one day you hear about this God who has you all figured out and wants to know you and doesn't want you to serve him or work for him or be in just debted to him, but wants to adopt you in as his child and live as family with a full inheritance. And he wants to know you intimately. And now, and now what? That's the interesting part of the, the text is that, and now what? Is the thing is, and now you go back and live as if you were slaves in oppression with access to this gift. The and now gets confusing. In verse 9, it continues. He says, Now that you are known by God, he says, Then how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? It draws the the same type of conversation that Moses had with the Israelites when they left Egypt and they get into this wilderness and they're pursuing the promised land and they're tired of what God is providing for them to eat and providing for them to drink and they, they even call out and say, it would be better for us to return to Egypt and be slaves that eat steak rather than be free and eat manna. And Paul is looking at this community going, wait, you want to return to being owned by this world? You want to go back to trying to figure it out yourself? You want to go back to this place where there's this oppressive nature around you? What is so enticing about what you used to do every day that the now that this Jesus came in is not enough and then you go back. And he gives an illustration after that of them going back. He says, you've, you've gone back not only to what you used to do, but you've added the Jewish feel to this. You were not only doing what the culture was doing around, but you've added all of these feasts, things that even Steve mentioned earlier that started this aspect of Passover, that Jesus says, you don't have to do Passover anymore. Instead, we, t- we participate in Eucharist. They're going back and they're practicing all of the festivals under the everyday of the old covenant instead of living in the freedom of the Eucharist in the new covenant. Because somehow the until one day wasn't powerful enough to change the and now. They went back, back into the old everyday, back into the who I was before. Paul gives them an illustration and he's like, wait a minute, do you remember that the first day, this is the next part of the text, he says, do you remember that when I met you, I was sick, I was struggling, the only reason that I came to your town, which this is kind of like, this is where I grew up, the only reason I came to your town was because I was too sick to go to the next town. It's really how all my friends ended up in Maysville. They're like, had to, it was the only job my dad could get, 
here for a season. It was like they opened up a plant we came from, Los Angeles, and we end up in Maysville. I had a couple of friends in high school. I'm like, how did you get here? This was the only job that like was open for my dad at the time. It wasn't, we looked on a map and we're like, promised land, Maysville, Kentucky, the land of cows and tobacco and a really big gym where people play high school basketball and believe that like that's the second coming because that's what we did in Maysville. Basketball was everything at the time. I played football. I don't know. Didn't work out well. But Paul tells them, remember, the only reason that I stopped by was because I was so sick, I couldn't keep going. And I'm sick, and you welcomed me in, and you listened to the word I was saying with such excitement that his illustration is, I believe that at that time, you were so excited about who Jesus is and what he was doing, that if I had said, would you gouge your eyes out and give them to me so that I could be healed, you would have done it. That's, that's what he says in the letter. You would have actually like pulled your eyes out because you loved the message and you were so generous and hospitable. And then he asked the question, what happened? You were more generous and hospitable before you knew Jesus than after. Ow, that hurts. But those are Paul's words. Because you actually were more hospitable and generous before All of this stuff happened, but you've got these outside religious people and they're entertaining you and they're telling you that you matter and they're telling you how great you are and they're inserting all of your past every day back into your now and it's making you super religious, but you have no grace. You have no hospitality. You've lost the mission. Our and now could look a lot like that, where instead of following the gospel, we are choosing to return to the entrapments of life before the relationship that we were offered with God through Jesus, that we go back to being in bondage because of our shame, because of our guilt, because of our upbringing, because of things that were done to us or things that we did to someone else that come back up in our story, we go back to our every day because and now feels a lot like every day and we forget the until that moment happened. Or, or we could invite others to live like us following in the divine promises given as adopted children of God in that we are known and loved. Paul in in verse 10 makes the statement of live like me. Really interesting. Not live like Jesus. No WWJD bracelet for Paul. What would Paul do is what he's asking, I guess. If you grew up in the 90s, you remember those. They're back in some places. I saw a kid with one the other day. It's like, why do you have that? And he's like, because it's from the 90s. Like, that was it. I was like, good. I'm glad that's the only reason you, I don't really want you to have it. He's gonna start singing Friends are Friends Forever. It's gonna be just a really cool moment. Some of you just got triggered. I'm sorry. Grew up in that too. He does not say, do what Jesus did. He said, actually, his challenge in that of every day I was doing this, And then one day for Paul, I was met on this road and Jesus met me and who he was with his grace and his mercy and he found me and now 
I invite people to live like me as I try to imitate Christ, as I pursue him. But I don't just say, don't pursue me. I'm not good enough. I don't live up to this standard enough. I have too much shame. I have too much guilt. Well, Paul's pushing us in his saying, no, put your name on it. Be able to say that your now is different than your everyday was because Jesus met you in a moment and he transformed who you are through what you were doing and who he is now. And in that transformation, you can say, no, 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 come follow me because I know shame too. I know guilt too. I know brokenness too. I know victimization too. I know overcoming too. I have a broken family as well. I came from Maysville. I milked cows. You can follow my example. I used to milk cows and I don't anymore. Let's not milk cows together, right? Whatever. There's a path to success. You can grow up in a city. You can grow up in a town. You can grow up with one amazing small family or one really massive extended family. You can grow up in any of them and you can say, no, follow me because the grace for you in this journey is the same as the grace for me in this journey. So my now changes. It's not follow me now because I'm so sanctified and holy. It's follow me now because that moment changed me. It transformed me. And now I'm different. And now I slow my pace down and offer more hospitality than before I knew Jesus. And I offer more grace and I enter into the path of overcoming because something happened and now I'm different. And Paul's invitation, it's actually less of an invitation to that audience, it's an invitation for us, but to them he actually said, I wish I was seeing you face to face because I know what I'm saying is coming across really harsh right now. And I wanna see you in your face because he actually, well, he's a, an apostle who loves to troubleshoot. He says, I wish I was there so I could see what happened because I care about you so much, I wanna know what happened. You were so generous to me. You were so hospitable to me. You were so loving and caring to me. And now you're spending all of your days trying to host events and holidays and festivities on behalf of Jesus instead of just loving people in the name of Jesus. And he ends with this threaded story that he has throughout his letter. He says, remember there was a guy named Abraham and every day Abraham would wake up with his wife Sarah and they would go and they would oversee all of their land and they would oversee all of their servants and they would oversee all of their cows and goats and all of the things that they had. And then one day this God said, you're overseeing a lot of things but there's nothing that is your heir from your flesh and I will make you a father, Abraham. You will be a father of many nations and it will come through your line. This is my promise to you. This is my divine promise to you and to your wife. And that promise was so audacious that his wife Sarah laughed in a tent and was like, yeah, right. Have you met me? Have you seen how old I am? I'm over 80, my dude. It stopped working a while ago in that world. This is not happening. And Abraham was like, yeah, that'll be an interesting one too. Something happened. They got a promise. What was it like after they left? The guy was like, I hear you laughing. I hear you joking, but it's really going to happen. What was that next conversation where Abraham and Sarah were like, did they even give themselves a shot to dream? Did they go, hmm, could it, huh, is it really possible? 
Is it really even an option? Because after all we've been through and after all we've let go and after all we've buried in that area, in that arena, all that we have had to just say is, is not an option for us in order for us to just get through the day, in order for us to make it through the everyday, we had to crucify that option. Is it even possible? And did they dream for a few minutes? And did they have a conversation? It seems like they did because their conclusion was, even for him, it seems too much. And Sarah said, yeah, but, but Abraham, I really want you to be a dad. You'd be a great dad, so I've got an idea. You see my girl over there, the one that works for me, the one that doesn't have a voice, the one that has to do what I say? She can still have kids. Use her. Let's just make what God promised happen for ourselves. Let's go back to our everyday when we were doing well by taking care of ourselves and let's just write his name on it. So they did. And we have Ishmael. God was like, wait a minute. That's not what I promised you. I didn't promise that I would put a burden on you that you would feel like you needed to break a covenant with me in order to honor me through the covenant that I made with you. No, Abraham, I would never give you a covenant that would cause you to sleep with anybody but your wife. Just want you to know that. Wouldn't have given that to you. And Paul says this is an allegory at this point that we can engage that God was both using this in a real-time story for Abraham and Sarah and teaching us a story about us. And he takes this nation of Israel and says, hey, and you guys... You guys are acting like Ishmael. You're acting like the son. You're acting like the covenant that wasn't supposed to be a covenant. You're like this humanity that has taken on the name of the kingdom of God and tried to do work on his behalf but gave up on the promises of God for the kingdom that actually dwells on his behalf. And, and Ishmael started to pick on Isaac Isaac, the actual heir, the one that came between Abraham and Sarah. And Paul ends this chapter by saying, stop being the flesh-made kingdom and start being the divine promise kingdom. Because now changed. Every day is not the same anymore. We don't have to make it happen on God's behalf. We can wait on the promises of God to happen which is hard for me because not everything's gone well in my everyday. And sometimes the until now and then that moment that happened with Jesus doesn't feel like it's enough to change my now and I don't wanna show people the life that I'm living. I don't wanna show people the brokenness behind it. I don't wanna show people the hard days. I don't wanna have people follow my example. I just want them to go follow the example of Jesus because maybe he loves them more than he loved me and maybe he'll do it better for them because I'm like, I kind of am out because it doesn't feel like the divine promise is coming my way. Paul says, just wait on it. Just believe in that divine promise. That's what he says in verse 31, at the end of this chapter. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free one. And now we invite others to live like us, following in those divine promises that are given to adopted children 
that we are known and loved because we're not children of slavery. We're children of a free relationship between God and humanity. And we get to just invite people to live like that. We are free to love and to be known and to offer that to those around us. Every day, until one day, and now. My invitation for this week is just to ask someone that question, those three things, like, what was your everyday like? And then what happened? And what's life like now? And you will find the story of God written deeply throughout this room. Let's pray. Jesus, every day, I don't deserve you. Even in this moment, in the elephant in this room, I know I don't deserve you. And then one day, you gave grace upon grace and truth. And now I accept that and pray that I can offer it to others. And I pray for that to happen in this room. It's in your name, amen.